All right. Well, so now I I have come to the point where we're going to tonight look. This is tonight, and then next week we're going to look at the different millennial views and just get an overview of what they teach before we move on to more specific subjects. So that's what tonight is. Now last week we looked at covenant theology and dispensational theology. And before I go into this tonight, I just want to mention um, a new kid on the block, I guess. New Covenant Theology. New Covenant Theology. You say, well, what's New Covenant Theology? New Covenant Theology is uh, a view that has become very popular and influential, and I think it deservedly so in reform circles, uh, because what it does, is that it, it goes to those theological covenants, covenant of redemption, covenant of works, and covenant of grace, and says, it's, they're not in the Bible. They're not there. They're not in the Bible. Moreover, they say, you don't need them. The reason you don't need them is, is that you've already got in the new covenant what you need as far as the covenant of grace is concerned. Um, I don't agree with them. They come out in exactly the same place as far as interpreting the end times as covenant theologians do. <laughs> So they're either are millennialists, that's the majority of them, post-millennialists, or uh, historical covenant premillennialists. Okay, we'll look at covenant premillennialism next week. So they're, they're one of those. Usually they're are millennial, and we'll look at at our millennialism more tonight and, and ongoingly. Um, they also like to talk about a creation covenant as well in uh, the first chapters of Genesis, particularly chapter 1 of Genesis. And they, uh, you know, they have some arguments about that. They say that uh, the, the covenant with Noah, when God talks about the covenant with Noah, he uses a verb there to describe that covenant in the Hebrew that doesn't refer to um, the actually setting up of the covenant, the cutting of the covenant, as it was, but can refer to, and does it in places, refers to uh, it being uh, uh, re-instigated, as it were, or re-inaugurated, okay? But but known before. There is some uh, exegetical warrant for that, but the verb that's being used there doesn't always refer to the reinstigation of something. And so, oftentimes it does, but it doesn't always do that. And besides that, um, it's the context that matters. And the fact of the matter is, you, if you look back and you say, okay, so maybe there was a covenant before Noah, you can't find it. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, going into a room and saying, maybe somebody was here before me, but there's nobody there. And there's no evidence that they are there. Do you see? I mean, 
you can look and then maybe surmise, tell yourself a story that somebody was there and present it, but there's no real clear evidence that anybody was there. Do you see? And it's the same here. You, you might say, well, before Genesis 6, which is where the first word, uh, first occurrence of covenant is in the Bible, and Genesis 9, where the Noahic covenant is actually set up, that there may have been one, but when you look in the chapters before, you can't find it. And if you can't find it, particularly if you can't find an oath, you don't know what it was about. And if you don't know what it was about, what is the point in talking about it? Do you see? Um, but they do place quite a lot of emphasis. It really is more of a theological covenant than a covenant that you find in the Bible. And then what they uh, they do basically is they uh, they use the same ideas of uh, interpreting the Old Testament in terms of the uh, the new covenant set up by Jesus Christ at his first coming. All right? At his first coming. So I just thought I'd just mention that, just thought I'd throw that in. But as far as what we're doing here is concerned, there's not really any difference. Okay? If we were talking about the system itself, there'd be more than I'd need to throw in there, but not an awful lot, quite honestly. They tend to be Baptists as well, the people that go for New Covenant theology. And it does fit more into the Baptist view. The Baptist view of the church, remember, is that you have to have a regenerate church. You have to have a church full of Christians, believers, who are then baptized, do you see? And are part of the New Covenant. In the Presbyterian system, and the Anglican system, but more, the, you know, much more the Presbyterian and Dutch Reform systems, it's not just believers that are in the New Covenant, it's their children, their unregenerate children, that are also in the New Covenant because of their, their understanding that the church is made up of believers and their children. Do you see? So it's a different view of the church that, uh, again, uh, influences those decisions. All right, that said, we'll start off with post-millennialism. So, um, <clears throat> there are any number of definitions. There's, there's a number of, of books that I've got and, and uh, books that I've read, articles that I've read that, that speak about how the definitions go, but it's really all about the same. So, the basic definition of post-millennialism uh, can be basically summed up with uh, the fact that uh, the church will establish God's kingdom on earth through the preaching of the gospel. And uh, the world will experience
an error, and we could put in here millennium, but in scare quotes, of um, what we might call Christian peace. Before the second coming. Second C is what I'm just going to call it, okay? So just have a quick look at that. You okay with that? Now, I didn't say if you were okay with it as far as did you agree with it. I mean, are you okay with understanding what it is saying? Okay? All right, there we are, good. Okay, so just to, uh, to drive some of this home, this is a book, it's a useful book, Three Views of the Millennium and Beyond, and it has uh, post-millennialism, amillennialism, and uh, pre-millennialism in it. And so the post-millennial guy goes first, uh, Kenneth Gentry in this book. He's a well-known post-millennialist. And I, I just want to go through some of the things that he says in his, in his statement, okay? Here's the basic idea of post-millennialism given by Gentry, page 13 of the book, and 14. Post-millennialism expects the proclaiming of the spirit-blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation in the present age. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and of nations. After an extensive era, you have millennium, okay? After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly. So your millennium comes before the return of Christ. Do you see that? Uh, He returns visibly, bodily, and in great glory, ending history with the general resurrection and the great judgment of all humankind. End quote. Uh, So, you know, that's basically what I wrote down there. Yes, you'd agree? There's nothing I wrote contradicts what he's just said. Um... I've just seen something here. Got to change. Drive me nuts. All right, there we are. Uh, post-millennialism has been popular throughout church history, and uh, it has been very. You can see why it has been popular in certain phases of church history, anyway, um, because it it's it's optimistic. Okay, it's optimistic, and uh, and they say they give glory to God and the gospel because they say, well, look, if the church does its job, and if the church, as the church spreads the gospel, then uh, you know more and more people will become Christians, and the world will become Christianized, and the world will be regulated by Christian 
ethics and morality, the governments will become more moral and they will establish governments based on freedom of expression, freedom of speech, fairness, and on we go. Um, so, so they have that going for them. Post-millennialism has always been popular when it has looked like the church is doing well. Okay? So, it was very popular, for example, in the Puritan period, in the, uh, well, the end of the 16th century and beginning of the 17th century. A lot of Puritans uh, held that. And a lot of the Puritans that landed in, in Massachusetts Bay and so on were post-millennialists because they thought they were going to bring the kingdom, do you see, and establish the kingdom uh, in, Amer- in the Americas. So it has that kind of optimism to it, yes? It was also popular, particularly in America, but somewhat in Scotland as well, in the 19th century, very popular then. Uh, In the 19th century, in the American universities like Princeton, and, uh, well, uh, a number of others, but centred really around Princeton, uh, there was... uh, trying to think, uh, the, the seminary, Louisville Seminary, I think, was set up then, Southern Baptist Seminary. Uh, post-millennialism was very common with, with uh, the Princeton theologians and people like that, related to that in the South. Like, I'm not saying you would have heard these names, but theologians such as Thornhill and Dabney in the South and in the North, theologians like uh, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, uh, J. Gresham Machen, uh, those kinds of guys. Great guys, great men, okay? And so, during the times when it looks like the church is doing well, you have a growth of post-millennial teaching. Now, uh, today, you have a version of post-millennial teaching which is very common in the charismatic movement. Why do you think that might be true? Because, you know, these, these guys are not charismatics, generally, at all. It's because there are certain views in the charismatic uh, movement, the Kingdom Now theology, which teach post-millennialism. Because as the... Pentecostal come charismatic movement spreads in South America and in Africa, okay, certain parts of India and so on, somewhat in uh, the Far East. Again, the, the idea is, well, God's moving and the kingdom's coming, do you see? There's always a, that, that temptation to believe that, which means that that uh, many modern-day post-millennialists, even though they, they don't agree with the, like, the health and wealth gospel and things like that, or, or Pentecostalism, they still will hold to the same kind of end times view. Uh, in modern days, in America particularly, post-millennialism is connected with something called Reconstructionism, because we have to have a big, long word for it. Okay, 
So, I'll just put, this is the, the modern view. Oh, I don't have a pen that works well here. So, let's, let's see. I wonder what green's like. It's my favourite colour. Alright. So, it's called Reconstructionism. Christian Reconstructionism. Okay. And um, Christian Reconstructionism, as the name suggests, is post-millennial. Um, it kind of, it, it agrees with the arguments of the old post-millennialists, but that it adds to it the way that God's kingdom is going to be spread is not just through conversion through the gospel. People are going to be converted, but then also they believe that as people are converted and as the church gets more and more influence, the many of the Old Testament laws, not the not the cultic laws, you know, sacrificial stuff or any of that, but uh, laws such as the Christian observing the Sabbath and and those kinds of things, will become the laws of the land. Okay, and so there will be a uh, what they call a theonomy. There will be um, these biblical laws will be the the basic laws of the different lands in the kingdom of God being set up by the church. Uh, certain well-known names in the Christian Reconstructionist movement they're very big into homeschooling. So if you know. Homeschooling, you may have come across some works by Gary DeMar, for example, um, and um, the old Vision Forum that was popular for a while and then went defunct. That was this kind of view. And then you also have, um, there's another guy, like Douglas Wilson, who is a well-known blogger and often writes some very good stuff. Uh, he is into this this kind of view as well, okay? But it's not very common nowadays, okay? As far as you don't run into it a great deal, but there's still some some very fine men, some very fine scholars that hold to this form of post-millennialism. Um, let's kind of get an idea from a post-millennialist, Kenneth Gentry himself, of of uh, the way that they will argue. For this, uh, and again, I'm just picking a few things out of this this book. Um, for example, and he he gives six basic ideas of of uh, theological reasons for post-millennialism. His sixth, I think, is is an interesting one. He says, though we have supernatural opposition in Satan. He is a defeated foe as a result of the first advent of Christ. Then he quotes uh, Hebrews 2.14, which speaks about that uh, uh, Jesus has destroyed him who holds power over death. That is the devil. You know that text? Okay. And uh, what they do is they look at that text and they say, you see, he's been destroyed. Well, of course... If he's been destroyed, why are we warned against him? Okay. Consequently, 
he says, we can resist him that will, f- and he will flee from us. James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 9. Uh, we can crush him under our feet. Romans 16, 20. Okay, that doesn't say that you, it doesn't say to the church you will crush Satan under your feet. It says that Christ will sh- shortly crush him under your feet. Okay, he's looking to the future. Indeed, our God-given mission is to turn humanity from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, Acts 26.18. Thus, the church's ample equipment is given by a gracious saviour. If this, this kind of, if you, if you start to think as I go through this, that post-millennialism is built on just, seem to be cherry-picking certain verses, and putting to, together in a nice little narrative, um, I have to admit, that's what it's always seemed like to me. Okay, It has always seemed like they're, they're using proof text to prove what they would like to believe. Okay? Uh, so he moves on, and uh, he says, for example, this is page... 26 In Jeremiah 33, 24 and 25, the creation covenant that secures the regularity of the days and seasons serves as a ground of hope in God's covenant faithfulness to his people in the world. Um, I just mention this because if you'll turn to Jeremiah 33, you'll see what I mean by cherry picking. Jeremiah 33 is Paul Hennebury's, you know, that's the, that's the place I go to. It's my, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. <clears throat> so anyone who starts going to Jeremiah 33, I'm always interested in what they have to say. I always find, by the way, that, that post-millennialists and amillennialists usually avoid Jeremiah 33 like the plague. But if they do go there, they cherry pick it. They will not examine it in its context. So let's look at it in its context, okay? Verse 14. I'll read down and do a brief exposition, even though we've looked at this before. Behold, the days are coming. So what's this? It's a prophecy, yes? says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Alright. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He, this is Messiah therefore, shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, now, this is the passage, 24 and 25. Let me get there to 24 and 25. But uh, you can see already, we don't see much of the church. Remember, post-millennialism talks about this as the church. He's applying this passage to the church. Who does it look like it's applied to? Yeah. Who would Jeremiah think it was applied to? Israel. Of course he would. 
verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Well, if you're going to transfer that to the church, okay, then obviously what are you going to, you're going to have to change the throne of David there to a spiritual throne, aren't you? Okay. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Well, what are you going to do with the Levites? Okay, what are you going to do with the offerings? You're going to have to spiritualize them, aren't you? When I say spiritualize, I mean that you're not going to take this at face value. You're going to say, I know what it says, but it means something else. All right. Verse 19, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he may not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, that's a reference to what? And the sand of the seashore measured, that's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant, yes? So I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to David saying, to Jeremiah, excuse me, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord has chosen, that would be David and and Levi here, it will either be them or it will be uh, Judah and Israel, but it's almost certainly David and Levi because this, this is a future tense when Israel is going to be reunited. He has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before them. All right. So, uh, that's verse 24. Verse 25 says, Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth. And then he says, Then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob... Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay, and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause the captives to return and will have mercy on them. It sounds like in the context he's talking about Israel in the future and a blessing which involves David and the Levites, okay? But obviously, a post-millennialist will not believe that. He's saying here that um, this covenant of creation secures the regularity of days and seasons. And he quotes Jeremiah 33, 24 and 25, which is very ironic, isn't it? Because verse 24 seems to be written against their kind of interpretation of the Bible. Look what it says again. Have you not considered what these people have spoken? Saying, the two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Well, that's very often what they say. No more room for the Levites. David, certainly, because of Christ, is okay. As far as Israel is concerned, no 
um, no room for Israel as a nation. But what does it say here? Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation. Well, that's exactly what post-millennialists and our millennialists say. That there is no more future for national, ethnic Israel. And remember, Jerusalem is in this text too. Do you see how they've just kind of, they've just gone right over the top of that text without even seeing what's there? Why do you think somebody can do that? Why do you think somebody can read a text like that when they actually do teach the very things that, that God is saying don't teach? Because they're not looking for it. Because they've already decided what to look for in the text. What they're concerned about is a creation covenant that backs up their point of view. And it does indeed say in verse 25, if my covenant is not with day and night and so on. But they they say that's a creation covenant and they're probably trying to get back to Genesis chapter 1. But there is a covenant with creation. Do you know what, what it is in the Bible? It's the Noahic covenant. Exactly. It's the Noahic covenant. Um, so, they probably don't, don't... I'm not referring to the Noahic covenant there. I, I just stopped there to show you that they're going to a proof text that actually disproves their theology. But they don't, they seem to be riding roughshod over the top of it. Okay? He goes to the Abrahamic covenant. He goes through these different covenants. And uh, he goes to the Abrahamic covenant. And um, they all do this. They all go to Galatians chapter 3. Now, the Abrahamic covenant in Abraham, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3, gives you three provisions or three prophecies basically okay it talks about um, Abraham's descendants in fact let's just go to it so quickly so you can all see it's easier to follow if you've got the text right in front of you Genesis 12. The Abrahamic covenant says this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land, notice that, that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, that's the first thing. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, there are three prophecies here, okay? First of all, I'll make you a great nation. Secondly, I'll make your name great and make you a blessing. And then thirdly, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see that? The first one 
is connected to the land. See, land nation. Do you see that? Look at verse 12. Sorry, look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Okay? So the land is the place, Canaan, where uh, God has taken Abram. And in chapter 15, it's, it, the, the prophecy is expanded there. All right. So you think they're on good ground there because obviously there are passages in the New Testament which also speak about us in the church being children of Abraham. Okay? Galatians chapter 3 being the classic example. And so we'll have a look at that right now because he does make a, a quite a bit of that. Go to uh, Galatians 3 and I'll, I'll just uh, read you what he says here. Their argument for this, by the way, is almost exactly the same argument as the millennialist, And the reason for that is that millennialists, millennialism is... Um, is very closely connected with post-millennialism. Okay? There's a, there's just tweaking of, of the when and how, but it's basically the, the same view. So our millennialists basically were called post-millennialists until about the first quarter of the last century. Okay? Our millennialism is a, is a new term. Um, Anyway, here's what, here's what Gentry says. And uh, let's see, let's go quickly. The essence of the Abrahamic covenant appears in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. So he's, he's given it there where we've just been. And he says... For my present purpose, note that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. The New Testament explains this for us. And he's going to quote Galatians 3.8 and Galatians 3.16. Here we are. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Okay? Or, as Paul relates it elsewhere, quote, the promise to Abraham is, quote, that he would be an heir of the world, end quote, Romans 4.13. We're going to look at Romans 4.13 later on, okay? If you want to see... Again, special pleading. Uh, just look at the, uh, the scriptures they quote in context. But I move on. This supports the post-millennialist historical optimism. Abraham's cosmic airship develops by means of the spread of the gospel. The historical prospects of gospel victory bringing blessing on all nations comes by gradualistic conversion. Most post-millennialists believe that this will happen, the conversion of the world will happen slowly. Okay? And some of them will start the millennium off 
like in the 19th century, or they'll, you know, they'll start it off in the 17th century. Today. The millennium started then, because they thought that that was the beginning, you know, the good times, that, that was the beginning of the millennium. All right? Others will believe that it hasn't started yet, because the church hasn't done that yet. Um, other, still others will say that the millennium actually will be bro- brought in very quickly by a worldwide revival. Okay, so there are different nuances to this. Um, He continues and says, This modus operandi has long been the method of God and the experience of God's people in Scripture. God gives Israel the promised land through, uh, through process. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. Prophecy also expects the incremental progress of redemptive victory among all nations. We see the water of life flowing gradually deeper. Well, where's he going to get that from? He has a proof text here. Can any of you think where it is? What's he proving? He's proving the gradual spread of the gospel, yes? So where's he going to go for that, do you think? You know we're going to get it. Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12, which describes the temple, okay, and waters flowing from the temple and irrigating the lands. Alright? And obviously that can't be literal. Okay? So it must be symbolic of the victory of the gospel. Come back to that in a minute. And the kingdom of heaven slowly growing larger. Daniel 2.35. Daniel 2.35, remember it's the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And a stone cut without hands comes and smashes the kingdoms at the toes of the image. It, it, uh, it kind of crumbles and the winds blow it off and then you see the um, the stone growing into a mountain that covers the whole earth. Alright? Please notice there that before any of that can happen, the kingdoms have got to be completely wiped out. Okay? So the kingdom of heaven slowly growing larger and taller. He goes to Ezekiel 17, 22-24. Permeating more fully, Matthew thirteen thirty three. We'll look at this. That will be the parable of the leaven. They love that one, and producing more fruitfully, Mark four. All right. The thing is that none of these texts has actually got anything to do with what he's using them for. And we can't look at all of them, but I do want to go back to the Ezekiel forty seven. So, if you'll turn to Ezekiel 47. Now, Ezekiel 47, for those of you that that did our course on uh, uh, biblical theology, you know that I hit this pretty hard. It's part of a long section in Ezekiel that is from at least chapter 40 right the way through to chapter 48. Those chapters are as long or longer than the whole book of 1 Corinthians. About 
you know, that long. So if it's not literal, then Ezekiel has taken an awful long time and an awful lot of pains to talk about stuff that actually isn't the case. Because he talks about staircases and he talks about dimensions of rooms and where the windows are and where the priests, certain priests are going to be. And certain priests can go here and certain priests can't be can't go there and there's a laver and it's that's it's this size and it's put over to the right over here and then you've got this uh three steps up goes to this next antechamber and so on and so forth and it's really boring reading now let's face it it's pretty boring stuff but it's important stuff if ezekiel 43 is right and they're going to rebuild the temple which is what god says it's for it says it's for a pattern to rebuild it but if it's not literal, then um, Ezekiel's wasting a lot of papyrus. Okay? I mean, just get down to the nitty-gritty and tell us what you're talking about. Okay? Um, one post-millennialist, actually, uh, in the 19th century, Patrick Fairburn, wrote a commentary on Ezekiel, which is um, was well thought of. And when he gets to those last chapters... Okay, he spends literally about seven pages on all of those chapters because he doesn't have anything to say about them because he doesn't take them literally. Um, anyway, chapter 47, first 12 verses. Let's read them because remember, these are proofs of the water of life gradually flowing gradually deeper and the water of life is obviously the gospel, okay, in his understanding. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple to the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. Look at the detail here. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east and there was water running out on the right side. And then when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he's measuring it, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. So he's he's, uh, measured 1,000 cubits uh, out and 1,000 cubits out is, uh, it, it's just ankle deep, the water. And it goes through and he goes another thousand cubits and it's up to his waist and he goes further on and it's a river that couldn't be crossed. Verse 5, verse 6 says, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river, were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it enters the sea, its waters are healed. The waters of the sea are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the uh, rivers go, will live. There will be very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. And then he goes through En Gedi, the port there, and sees in verse 11 the swamps and the marshes. They're not healed, okay, because they're given over to salt. 
But along the bank of the river, you have all these, these trees that are for food and uh, the leaves don't wither, the fruit doesn't fail, they're for every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. But if you don't believe the temple's literal, then you don't believe that he went on the east side of the temple, you don't believe that the water came from underneath the temple, and you don't believe that uh, he went a thousand cubits out and the water came to his ankles, and you don't believe that these waters healed the sea. You don't believe any of that, because it doesn't mean any of that. It actually just means that the gospel has a deeper influence and penetration over a period of time. That's how he's used it, yes? Now, here's the thing. Let's stop and consider this because I want to move on to deal with our millennialism in uh, in a few minutes. But let's let's just kind of think about this. And I'll think about where I've done what I've done with my black pen while I'm thinking about it. Where is it? There it is. There is a straightforward way to interpret what Ezekiel is saying, isn't there? Could you understand what Ezekiel was saying, basically? But he's saying, no, you are you, you're not to believe that at face value. You are to believe this interpretation of it. So, if I just, uh, I'll just take this off for a second. This is what's going on, and this is what, this is their approach to prophecy. Okay, and it's the approach of not just post-millennialism, but amillennialism and sometimes historic premillennialism too. Okay, is that you have you read the text? Okay. Now, when you read any text, okay, you come away with an interpretation. He's saying that the face value interpretation of the words, because you have to see what the words say before you can, you know, say that you're going to, that they're symbolic or whatever. You've got to take them at face value first. So you've got this initial interpretation of the words, okay? But then you read the interpreter. Or his text. The interpreter's text is what we've read out of this book. Okay? So you're giving, you're having an interpretation in reading what he's saying. Yes? Would you agree with that? But what he says is not what Ezekiel says. What he says is a re-interpretation of what Ezekiel says. Would you agree with that? Okay. He is asking you to have faith in which interpretation? His. Okay. You have faith, you exercise faith, not in this interpretation, but in this interpretation. 
Now, this is a clear example, and I'm giving it to you because this happens over and over and over and over and over again. This is what they do. Whether they're post-millennial or are millennial, this is what they do. Okay? They will, they will read the text, or they will take you to the text, often to a bit of it. Okay? Because they're not very good at the con- at context. But they'll take you to the text, okay, and then they'll give you an interpretation of that text that you're supposed to believe. Which doesn't match up with what the text is saying. The reason for that is they're saying that we, we have to interpret the Old Testament based on the New Testament and particularly on the first coming of Christ. It, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then, um, and the church, which is in Jesus Christ, then obviously, you know, in order for this Ezekiel to make any sense to us, it can't mean what it says, because there's not going to be another temple. Because Jesus is a temple, and the church is a temple. You see? So then they, they come back in and they say, there we go. This must mean this the deepening of the waters, the spreading of the gospel. Oh, but it only means that if you're a post-millennialist. Because post-millennialism teaches that. If you're an R-millennialist, it can't mean that, because R-millennialists, as we'll see in a minute, don't believe that. So how are they going to uh, approach this text? Well, they're not going to approach it this way and accept this interpretation, because they too interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament and by the first coming of Christ. But they're not going to accept the post-millennial view because they're not post-millennial and they don't believe that the gospel is going to spread out in the way that they, the symbolic interpretation of the post-millennialist, yes? Of of the Ezekiel 47 text. Um, So their interpretation of that is going to be, uh, well... It's going to be basically something to do with the spiritual life. Yeah, the spiritual life that as the waters of the gospel have influence over you or influence over your church and so on, that they deepen your experience. Which means that you're going to be given another interpretation down here that you have to choose from, which differs from this interpretation. And you have to exercise faith in one of them. It becomes precarious because neither of them are agreeing with what Ezekiel's actually saying. Now, obviously, you think not a lot hinges on, on an obscure text in Ezekiel, okay? Fair enough, I'll just take that for the time being. But there are some passages, there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament, a lot of scriptures that there's quite a lot of hinges on it. Okay? Does God mean what he says or doesn't he? What about that Jeremiah 33 passage that we just read? That talks about a future when Jesus comes back, sits on the throne of David and Jerusalem is is called a city of righteousness. Okay? Um... And uh, 
the Levites will be offering sacrifices to God and a son of David will sit on the throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. What about that? We can't believe that if you believe in post-millennialism and our millennialism. Okay, why? Because you don't believe that there's a future for the literal nation of Israel, do you see? Or the Levitical priesthood. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, therefore, you're just going to cherry pick that passage for something that you might agree with. But according to God in Hebrews 11, um, you have to have faith in order to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, it says. So you've got to exercise faith in his word. But what's going on here? Are you exercising faith in what God says or are you exercising faith in what the interpreter says God says? That's the issue, you see. And you're going to see this all the way through the Bible with the adoption of these systems. Even in the New Testament, we'll go into the New Testament, we'll see that they do the same thing. Sometimes with with better reason for doing it, but they do the same thing. Do you need some water? Oh, okay, no problem. All right, so I'll just uh, give a little bit more here. I know that you you just love this stuff. Um, He talks about the Messianic Psalms and he says that they're very, very important uh, for this. And... uh, do you want to flick through quickly? I'll read one paragraph and I want you to flick through some of these psalms quickly. Okay? Alright. So the first one he's going to go to is Psalm 22, verse 27. So just line yourself up there and we'll go kind of a, kind of quick fire through here. Psalm 22, obviously, is that, that crucifixion psalm. And he says this on page 32, Particularly significant in the eschatological debate are the Messianic Psalms. The post-millennialist derives great encouragement for his or her historical optimism from these glorious prophetic hymns. For instance, Psalm 22:27 anticipates a time when, quote, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. End quote apparently on the basis of evangelistic persuasion rather than Armageddon imposition. All right, well, Psalm 22. Uh, look at verse uh, 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Um, the assembly there has got to do with the the assembly of the people of Israel, who, uh, who, sorry, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. 
I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship you. Who's the you? Probably, yes, the person who's undergone the first part of the psalm. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. The context here is Israel. And the context also points to a future period. They shall do this. Okay? There's nothing here though about the spread of the gospel. There's nothing here about the spread of the gospel. There's nothing here about the imposition of some apocalyptic stuff either. Okay? It just simply says that the earth uh, will be ruled over by the Lord. Verses 27 and 28. Well, that is perfectly in line with what it says in, for example, Isaiah 11 and Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, all dealing with the Messiah and Israel. Uh, Zechariah 14. There's no need to uh, switch this out for the church proclaiming the gospel. Other psalms follow suit. His salvation is to be known among all nations. Psalm 67, verse 2. Alright. Well, that's not going to be a problem in, because of the promised new covenant. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. That's just a prayer. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God shall bless us, verse 7, to all the ends of the earth. Uh, all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Okay, so what's... About, what's that's just... That doesn't prove post-millennialism. That just says that one day God's going to rule over the nations. Well, is he going to rule over them through post-millennialism, millennialism pre-millennialism? The psalm doesn't tell you. He's just cherry-picking it, you see? One more. He quotes some others, but he says here, In fact, Messiah will be seated in heaven until his enemies become his footstool, Psalm 110, verse 1, a theme verse that becomes the most cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Uh, Yeah, until Psalm 110. Jesus quoted this. Now, of course, post-millennialists are going to say, yeah, the church is going to bring in a kingdom and when the church brings the kingdom, Jesus will have to wait until the church does that and then he'll come back. That's the until with, with him. But Psalm 110 
simply says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Hold on a minute. I thought that uh, post-millennialism said there won't be many enemies because they'll be converted. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are priests forever, according to the order, author, sorry, order of Melchizedek. Um, what it means there is that that uh, this person will unite the the kingship with the priesthood. And Jesus will do that. But not right now, and the, and that's not something that that uh, the church can bring about. That's something that the Lord brings about at the second coming. But they don't believe that that this is brought about by the second coming. They believe it's brought about after the first coming, because that's their interpretation. All right. So that's briefly what post-millennialism is. And they, they argue in this way and it's not very persuasive. Um, one other text in Matthew 13, parable of the leaven. Okay, I'll take this off here. Parable of the leaven. Now notice it's a parable. That's the first thing. That's not doesn't mean that it can't be understood, but it is a parable. Ah. Verse 33, Matthew 13. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable he did not speak to them. Oh, right, there's not very much said there. So, this is all we've got to go on. Here's the post-millennial interpretation. And the amillennial interpretation, interpretation follows this, by the way. Amillennialists sometimes, they take post-millennial positions that seem to go against their views. Okay? They just do that, but that's because there is a, a, a real connection between the, the views. So, how do, we, how do we understand this from a post-millennial point of view? The kingdom of heaven is going to be the spread of the gospel through the church. Okay, so the spread of the kingdom is like leaven. Okay. That a woman hid and then it spread until, till all was leavened. The leaven is the gospel that is put into the world. And the gospel works and spreads all over the world. See the post-millennial interpretation there? Can you see a problem with that? Who was Jesus talking to? Jews. What do Jews think of this? 
Leaven signified usually something that's wrong, sin or something that's not, shouldn't be there. Okay, so when it came to the time of the Passover, what did they have to do with this stuff? Make sure it wasn't in their houses and in their homes or in their bread that they were going to eat. Okay, had a negative connotation. What does Paul say? He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here, yeah? But he doesn't say it in a positive sense, as a little leaven of the gospel leavens the whole of the world, that, like, watch out for sin. Okay? Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Beware of it. Leaven has a negative connotation to a Jew. Therefore, a Jew is not going to interpret this in a post-millennial way. Notice that the woman hides this. It's surreptitious. She doesn't just put it in, she hides it until everything. So this, this uh, parable, I believe, is uh, a factor, an illustration of the growth of sin in the kingdom. You say, well, how, hold on a minute, how can that be? Well, you you've know about the parable of the wheat and the tares, don't you? Isn't there somebody sowing tares there? And aren't they growing? There's a negative side to some of these parables. Alright? And this is an illustration of the negative side. That makes far more sense, doesn't it? So what they're doing, you see, is they've already got in their mind the victory of the gospel and so they're taking a passage like this which would not have been interpreted that way by a Jew and they're making it into a positive putting a positive spin on it a Jew would not have put a positive spin on this alright cosmic temple time because I know you love it so you remember the cosmic temple Okay, so the cosmic temple, I know you're looking at me narrowly, you're thinking, oh dear, do I have to think about that thing again? Just briefly. So the cosmic temple is basically that when God created the world, he put uh, Eden in there, remember the garden, this is the garden, and there's Eden, and the garden is a safe space, it's a sacred space, it's where God met with uh, Adam, Adam was a priest there, and uh, Eden was kind of a temple, yeah, which, and uh, his job was to spread out, okay, the garden by overcoming the evil in the rest of the world and spread out the temple over the rest of the world, okay? He was given that job, failed. Israel was given that job, failed. Um, Jesus is given that job, And he's going to succeed. So, he's doing that job through the church right now, according to this model. You see, it supports post-millennialism. Doesn't it? You see that? You say, yeah, but this is a bunch of rubbish. I know it's a bunch of rubbish. (laughs) I'm just telling you that it supports post-millennialism. But most of 
the advocates of this stuff are our millennialists. You say, what's an our millennialist? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> All right. So these are the kind of arguments they use. They're not very impressive. Okay? But you see, what they do, you, the, the way that they argue, they tell stories. Okay? They tell stories. Uh, they will go to a text, they'll hop on it, they'll use a bit of it, okay, and they'll tell a story about it. Um, and they won't often, you know, then they'll jump to another text and then jump to another text. So, enough of post-millennialism, let's jump to our millennialism, which is much more common. Most of your um, well-known guys, R.C. Sproul, yeah, he was an our millennialist, I think. Um... Alistair Begg, um, well, most of these guys are, are well-known, Gospel Coalition guys and so on, Timothy Keller and so on, would be our millennialist. Okay, what's an our millennialist? Do you remember what the A means here? Like non, it's, it, yeah, like uh, an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in theos, a God. An agnostic is somebody who doesn't believe you can know. Okay? So an millennialist here is basically saying that there is no millennium. Now, what does he mean by that? Because it's not a very good term. Because uh, he would say that there is such a thing as millennium. Okay? So let's kind of give a little definition here of an, an R millennialist. Right. So the church um, is in the millennium now. which will end in usually an apostasy or falling away just prior to the second coming. Then you have the new heavens and the new earth after that. Okay? So this is more pessimistic. Do you see that? There's no bringing in the kingdom here. Alright? Church has got a job to do. We're in the millennium already. Okay? And uh, because we're in the millennium already, and again it's all about the church, they're going to use the same interpretations as the post-millennialists do. Uh, so this has become much more popular than post-millennialism. And, and you know, if you, if you want to get on in, uh, in Christian scholarship, you know, our millennialism is the way to go. Okay? I mean, you might get by with being a historic pre-millennialist or post-millennialist. You might kind of get on. But this really is the way to go. 
uh, on that. Um, don't be a dispensational premillennialist because you are not admitted if you, if you are one of those. All right, so let's, let's see what these guys believe. I'm going to just, uh, just quote a few things here for you. And I'm going to try and keep it kind of nice and simple. All right. So here's, uh, here's uh, a book, These Last Days, A Christian View of History. And uh, Cornelius Venema, who wrote the chapter, says this. Uh, I will conclude our overview with our millennialism. Um, it does not mean no millennium, as the name might suggest. Rather, it takes the thousand years of Revelation 20 as figurative rather than literal. In this way, it agrees with post-millennialism, because that takes it figurative too. The our millennial position, from a historical point of view, rose to prominence in the church with Augustine in roughly the 5th century. It's become very very popular that way. Um, And he says this, when it comes to uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. If you want to turn there, you can do. The passage says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them, with those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, here's here's his interpretation. What is John referring to here in this language of the first resurrection and the second death? Premillennialists tend to argue that John is referring to a bodily resurrection when he speaks of the first resurrection. This view, I think, flattens the language of resurrection in the New Testament, insisting that coming to life and resurrection always and without exception refer to bodily resurrection. I don't think that this is the case. The first resurrection likely refers to the life and blessing reserved for the saints especially those who have died and will be raised on the last day. Thus, it is not a physical resurrection, but a spiritual participation in Christ. John sees this particularly to be the case of martyred saints, but it also refers to all who are united to Christ. They enjoy particular and pronounced blessings because of their union with Christ. That's the view with the uh, first resurrection. It's not really a resurrection. Okay? It's a spiritual participation. Now, the guy that, that writes the millennial view here is Robert Strimple. 
And uh, I want to, to give you some idea of, of the way he argues. Uh, this is a well, very well-received article by him. And he says, um, Is it correct to interpret such Old Testament prophecies of Ezekiel 46, of Ezekiel 44 and so on, as descriptions of a future millennial kingdom that Christ will establish on this earth at his second coming? To answer that, the crucial question the Christian must ask, of course, is this. How does the New Testament teach us to interpret such passages? So what he's saying is, don't just interpret the Old Testament on, you know, on the basis of the Old Testament. You have to interpret the Old Testament on the basis of the New Testament. Now, in saying that, there's, a, there's an assumption. The assumption is that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament differently than the Old Testament does. Alright? If you just read the Old Testament, you would come up with a different interpretation than if you read the, New Test- the Old Testament through the New Testament. You have to understand that that's what he's saying. Otherwise, he'd just say, well, just read the, what the Old Testament says. And he continues, In the New Testament, Christ's church has been given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the post-resurrection, post-Pentecost revelation that is absolutely authoritative. Her infallible guide in all matters of faith and life, including this vitally important matter of how to interpret Old Testament prophecy. So the New Testament is what you need for an, an authoritative and infallible guide to the interpretation of the Old Testament, particularly the prophecy. Now what this does, automatically, is it sets up the New Testament as a higher authority than the Old Testament. Do you see that? Which is a very odd thing, because where do the writers of the New Testament get their authority from? The Old Testament. But if the New Testament is a higher authority than the Old Testament, how can the New Testament get its authority from the Old Testament? Surely, the authority of the Old Testament must be at least equal to that of the New Testament, otherwise the New Testament writers are appealing to an authority that is beneath their own authority. Yes? I don't think that's right. I think that the authority of the Old Testament and the authority of the New Testament is on the same plane. Okay? There's not a two-stage view of authority in the Bible. Um, He says, the true Israel is Christ. The true Israel is Christ. He is the suffering servant of the Lord. This one who is, wonder of wonders, the Lord himself. Turn, for example, to Isaiah 41. Well, turn there. Surely the Old Testament saint, as he or she studied the servant songs of Isaiah, had to be puzzled. Jewish commentators to this day are puzzled. Here Israel is called by God his chosen one. Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. But as we go to 42, 1 to 7, the Lord says, well, hold on a minute, let's go to 41, uh, 8 and 9, and then we'll go to 42, certainly. 
So, you're all there before me. Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. And then he says, go to chapter 42, next chapter. Verses 1 through 7. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He, he, will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail to be discouraged till he he has established justice in the earth. And the coastline shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, the spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will give you... I was sorry, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now, there's no doubt, and do you remember that we quoted that last week, to prove that Jesus was a covenant. There's no doubt this is talking about Messiah, Jesus, Okay? And in fact, it's, parts of this are quoted in the New Testament uh, for just that purpose in, in the Gospels. Why did he go to uh, chapter 41? He went to chapter 41 that deals with, with Israel as a servant because that's kind of more national, okay? Israel, my servant, Jacob, descendants of Abraham, and so on and so forth. So what he's saying is that now the servant is really Jesus and And so Israel is encapsulated in Jesus. If you want to find Israel, you look to Jesus. All right? So what that starts to look like is you have uh, Israel, okay, the nation, now equals Jesus, who is, of course, not a nation. And we're in Christ, aren't we, if we're in the church? So that's the church. The church in him. So that's how they argue. Um, Let's go to chapter 49 which we also did last time, because chapter 49 also calls this servant a covenant. And look at verse 5. 
And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. Look at verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, tribes, notice, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles. Well, that's there from chapter 42. And you shall be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So, in chapter 49, the servant who is Messiah raises up the tribes of Israel as well as the Gentiles. He doesn't do away with them and he doesn't include them just in himself. Part of his job is to raise them up. Okay? All right. But look, here's our our millennialism. We're in the millennium right now. There's no future millennium. That's what the our millennialism is. There's no future millennium on earth. In post-millennialism, there is a future on earth, okay? And the church is bringing it in. That's basically the difference. So, the church is in the millennium now, which will end in apostasy and so on. So, if the church is in the millennium now, that means that um, there's no future millennium for the nation of Israel. Would you agree? Well, what do you do with all the prophecies about a future blessing for the nation of Israel? You give it to to Jesus, okay, and the church in Jesus. Well, one of the major things in the Old Testament that is repeated over and over and over and over again over hundreds and hundreds of years is the land. Okay? But Jesus hasn't given any land. But he's, hold on a minute, he's given the whole earth, isn't he? So the land of Israel becomes the whole earth. Do you see that? So the church inherits eventually the whole earth when Jesus comes back. And Israel, well, they have to get saved and get involved with the church because there's just one people of God and that's the church who are the new Israel. This is how they, this is how they argue. And they go to passages like Romans 4.13. Turn there. Romans 4.13. They love this one. Now, Romans 4, in the argument of the book of Romans, he's getting on to justification by faith, and his argument in chapter 4 is that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Do you remember that? And he was circumcised after he believed. Yeah? And uh, just as with the uh, Galatians 3 passage... Okay, part of the Abrahamic covenant is quoted here as well. Verse 3, But Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, 6. Okay. And he goes on and talks about believing and, and uh, being justified 
by faith. Now look at verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Ah, you see, Abraham's been promised that he was the heir of the world. Not just that little piece of land, you know, in Canaan and the rest of it, the world. Here's the trouble. Paul, in Romans 4, isn't talking about land. The world there, and it is the word is cosmos, but it's not a physical thing. It's, it has to do with peoples, the peoples of the world. And you know, the way you, we use the term, okay? When we say the whole world's going to be converted, for example, which I don't believe, but if we said that, we wouldn't be saying the land's going to be converted, we'd be, mean the people, yes? But Israel is given a specific land, okay? Paul here is not talking about land. Read the chapter, he's not. By world, he just means the spread of the gospel, people being you know, saved from different parts of the world and becoming children of Abraham. That's all he means. Well, that doesn't knock out the fact that Israel, who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, are going to get a literal land because that's only one part of the Abrahamic covenant and that has three parts to it. So the part that is quoted here, that has to do with the justification of Abraham, which was by faith. The part in Galatians chapter 3 that you read, which says that we are now um, children of Abraham, okay, quotes only the part that has to do with, through you, all the people of the world will be blessed. It doesn't talk about the land being given to Israel. But what they do is because of their view that the church is it in Jesus Christ, there's no land that's given to Jesus apart from the whole planet. Okay? So certainly there can be no land being given to the nation of Israel. Therefore, they do away with that part of the Abrahamic covenant that deals with land, which Paul doesn't quote when he's dealing with the church. It's easy if you spin the right story. Do you want to hear a story? I've got one for you. Because he gives an illustration. This illustration has been repeated several times uh, by people. Um, let me just see. Oh, here we are. Page 99 and 100. Perhaps a simple illustration will help highlight the point that the fulfilment may transcend the terms in which a promise is presented. See, just where he's going to go with this, and where they all go, and it sounds so pious, is that, yeah, Israel's given, he's just given a bit of land. But really, the promise is the whole world. God just expands the promise. Do you see? So it's so much better. Okay? And you pre-millennial, you dispensationalists, you people that take the Bible literally, you know, I mean, you just 
you don't realize that interpreting it literally, you're just giving Israel a little bit of land. Whereas we, with our understanding of the Bible, are giving the whole world. There's just so much more, you know. You wooden literalists, though, you just don't get it. So here's, here's an illustration of, of their point. Consider a young man looking forward to entering a local college in the fall. In appreciation for his good work in high school, his father promises that he will give him wheels. That's definitive. for his upcoming birthday so that the boy will have transportation as a commuting student. The son is overjoyed, thinking that dad is going to buy him a motorbike. Birthday morning arrives and dad asks him whether he has been out in the driveway yet. The son hurries outside, but there is no motorbike there. Now, there is a $200,000 Ferrari sports car parked in the driveway, but there is no motorbike. Does the son come back to his father crying, you have robbed me of my hope? Obviously not. This is a rather materialistic illustration, but surely with regard to the reality of our spiritual blessings in Christ, the fulfillment by God's grace, both both now and in the day of the consummation and the eternal state, far transcends the terms in which the promise has been revealed. What promise? Well, the promise in the Old Testament, you know, to Israel. You know, they promised they were promised land, and they were promised that Israel would be the head and not the tail of the other nations, and that you know Jerusalem would be a great city, and and so on. Uh, but really, the promise is so much greater than that. It's comparable to that little story that we just heard. Can anyone see some problems in the story? This is very vague, isn't it? This is not vague. Not at all. Genesis 15 is anything but vague. Okay? But yes, this can be anything, can't it? Anything with wheels. Okay, he could have given him a roller skate, couldn't he? That has wheels. It doesn't... See here, notice the disappointment in the boy, or the guy. You know, disappointment as he tries to illustrate it, the, the, the guy comes out, sees the Ferrari, but he doesn't see a motorbike. Okay? So, he doesn't say to him, oh, well, look, you know, where's my motorbike? Well, the dad could have said, well, I didn't promise you a motorbike. Can God say that to Israel? I didn't promise you land. Oh, yes, you did! <laughs> Oh, yes, you did, and you made a covenant to give it too. This is not the same illustration, is it? Okay, somebody's not paying attention to what the Bible's saying. Moreover, did you notice, this is very subtle, the boy is the same boy. The same boy who gets the promise is the same boy who receives the fulfilment. But according to this view, okay, 
the promises given to Israel as a nation and fulfilled by the church, which is primarily Gentile. Different boy gets the fulfillment. You see the problem? Now, of course, they will say, and they do, oh no, it's just the believers in Israel anyway that, um, you know, they were the true Israel and they were already in the church because, of course, covenant theology, they believe in the covenant of grace as one people of God so that the believing Israelites were already in the church. But the promise was made to Israelites, children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You are not. You are a child of Abraham, but you're not a child of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You have to be a Jew to be that. Okay? So the illustration doesn't work. Nearly finished, but uh, I, I needed to, to point that one out to you. It's very subtle. Okay? And if you're not paying attention, you, you kind of just, you, you get, can get uh, fooled by this stuff. He says here on page uh, 89, again, he'll quote quotes Galatians 3. They all go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3 does not Quote, the part of the Abrahamic covenant that gives the land to Israel. It, get, it quotes the part of the Abrahamic covenant that gives blessings to the nations. So, what are you trying to prove? What they're trying to prove is that one part of the Abrahamic covenant that gives blessings to, to the nations destroys another part of the Abrahamic covenant which gives the land to Israel. But why should it? Why can't God do, bring about both things? Too often in me, meditating on this wonderful truth that we're now heirs according to the promise in Abraham's seed, we omit the all-important link in the chain of redemption that Christ himself is. We say, yes, the nation of Israel was the people of God in the old covenant. Now in the new covenant, the believing church is the people of God. Now millennialists have said that. Okay, and still say it quite a lot, but then they, you know, this guy is at least smart enough to reword it. And thus we quickly run past, or we miss the blessed point entirely. Notice the pious language here, the blessed point, the, you know. The fact that we Christians are the Israel of God. Abraham's seed and the heirs of the promises only because by faith we are united to him who is alone the true Israel see Abraham's one seed the singular in Galatians 3.16 yeah it does say that not unto seeds but unto seed Paul makes a that is Christ he makes a point of that but he doesn't say Israel he doesn't say Christ is Israel there This is Christ is Abraham's seed. We believers get in on the blessings promised to Israel only because by God's grace we are in him who is God's elect Israel. And by God's grace those blessings are extended to those who are united to Christ by faith. It sounds very pious. 
doesn't it? Um, here he says, we Christians are the Israel of God. Where does he get that from, that phrase? Galatians 6. Go to Galatians 6. All right. Now, Galatians is all about the Judaizers coming in to the Galatian churches, which were in, well, we think, well, we just say southern, uh, in Turkey. Okay. <laughs> some say northern Turkey, some say southern Turkey. All right. But in Turkey, modern day Turkey, called Asia at that time. And um, they were coming in and they're saying you had to be circumcised in order to really be right with God. So they were adding to Paul's gospel and corrupting it at the same time. So that's basically what Galatians is about, these, these Judaizers. Okay? And uh, he's been dealing with, with these people, these Judaizers. And he says here in verse 11, chapter 6, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You know, you're one of us, you're in our club. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All right. Do all of your translations say and? Okay. Some of your translations might say even. Okay? They might say, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even the Israel of God. Because the Greek particle chi, translate it this way, or you kind of put it that way, transliterate it that way, can be translated e- as meaning even. But the main uh, use of the word is and. Okay? The main use, by far the main. If you say that Kai means even, then here the church is being called the, the Israel of God. Do you see that? As many as walk according to this rule... Peace be upon them, even the Israel of God. Oh, well, the people that are according to that rule are the people that believe Paul's gospel. They're the church. Therefore, they are the Israel of God. So, the old NIV translated that, even the Israel of God. Okay, and some translations have that. That is not the natural rendering of that word. Okay? The natural rendering is and. He's making a distinction between those that walk according to the rule and the Israel of God. Why would Paul make a distinction? Well, because as we find out in, for example, Romans 9, Paul still believes there is a future for Israel. 
Okay? National Israel, the people of Israel, which we don't have time to look in tonight. So, Paul's been railing against these false Israelites, these Judaizers. And uh, the argument is, well, he's been going against these these uh, people and therefore they're the false Israel. Okay? And the true Israel is the church. But wait on a minute. Wait a minute. Paul is a Jew. And Paul says that even today, in Romans 9, he says, even today there is an elect of Israel according to grace. And then he says, when the fullness of the Gentiles are come in, in chapter 11 of Romans, as we'll see, then all Israel will be saved. He believes there's a future for Israel. So why wouldn't he talk about the Israel of God? There are believing people in Israel. They're the true Israelites. Do you see? The church is not called the Israel of God. And this would be a very weak passage to go to for a proof text for that teaching. Alright? The only reason that you would want to do that is because you would want to replace this with this. Or this with this. Which is why uh, this is called replacement theology. They hate that term, by the way. But it's what they are. Okay? Um... I'll give you an example if you'll go to Matthew. The Word of God always catches you out. Okay, so you might, you know, talk a good game for a while, but there's always, you always get caught out. Matthew 21. And uh, verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Okay? How do you think a post-millennialist or an amillennialist is going to interpret that? They're going to say, the you who the kingdom of God has been taken from, is Israel. And the people, the nation that it's been given to, is the church. That's replacement theology, right? That that interpretation is, in, is replacement. You're going to be replaced with another bunch, okay? Whereas actually what Jesus is saying here is that you unbelievers who are rejecting me, okay, it will be taken from you and it will be given to the nation believing Israel, okay, that deserves it. But they t- that's, uh, that's the proof text that they use. But he, Strimple here, tried to avoid that, didn't he? He tried to say, no, it's not the switching out of one people for another or Israel for the church. You don't realize that the church is Israel. Well, not according to their interpretation of that passage. Okay, no, there's a switching out. And I can give you interpretations as we further go further into this course. Our millennialism then teaches that the church is the one people of God, that we are in the millennium now. 
Okay? It is, it doesn't, it's not optimistic. So post-millennialists call them post-pessimistic uh, uh, millennialists because they say, well, you are millennialists. You don't believe the church is bringing in the kingdom. You believe that the church is in the millennium, but it's suffering, it's having a hard time of it right now. Some are millennialists even believe that, uh, that millennium, the millennium is the tribulation because we're in a tribulation now too. And uh, that it's going to end in apostasy, and then Christ will come back, and He'll fix a lot. Okay, then you'll have the new heavens and the new earth. You don't have another a thousand-year reign because we're in the millennium now. Okay. Any questions? Yes. The post-millennialists will believe if, if, the, if the age is good, like the, the gospel is being spread and there's revival, they might say, oh, the millennium is, is beginning now. But it's going to last for an unspecified period of time until all of the world is, uh, brings in that age. And then there will be an age also of stability and so on that is the kingdom. That's an excellent question. And, and it's like, what, what makes them think that it's happening? Yeah. We can't even come together as a body? Right. That is a, a very, uh, you know, key observation. Uh, what he's saying there, just for years, is that, well, Christians don't, can't get on with each other. Different denominations. But guess what? There's an answer to that. Their denomination is going to win out. <laughs> Okay, you see? And people that agree with them. And you stinking premillennialists, especially you stinking dispensational premillennialists, yeah, you'll be, you'll be sorted out, okay? I mean, nicely, okay? But that's not always been the case in uh, church history with Christians against people they disagree with. But basically, the Presbyterians, okay, they'll be the ones that um, you know, because it's mostly Presbyterians who are post-millennial. Uh, they'll be the ones who, whose teaching will spread. Everybody will become a Presbyterian, basically, and then that will bring the stability in the world. That's a very good question, and that obviously has to be the answer. You have to join our club. Okay? All right. Any other question? Yes. What do they do with uh, Romans 11, 11 and 12, where it says, where it talks about Israel's rejection? Um, We're going to deal with Romans 11 in detail later on, so I'll, okay. I will answer that then. Okay. okay. Anything else? Okay. Hopefully you've got, you know, more idea of, of, uh, of what they teach. Um, <clears throat> one of the things they will teach for example is the promise of the land this is a quote this promise of a land was fulfilled when Joshua led the people of Israel back to Canaan that's when that 
that promise came about. As Joshua himself said, uh, later put it, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give up their forefathers and they took possession of it and settled there. Joshua 21, 43 and also 1 Kings 4, 20 to 21. We'll look at that. See whether he's actually paying attention to what Joshua is saying. Um, but they, they often argue like this and if you're not paying attention you can kind of get caught, uh, caught out. Um, Riddle Barger in his book A Case for Our Millennialism, page 38. My last quote here for tonight. Um, this is a, this is, again, gives you an idea of where they're coming from. Because of their commitment to a literal interpretation of the Bible, dispensationalists see Old Testament prophecy as the determinative category through which New Testament prophetic data is interpreted. For example, the book of Revelation must be interpreted by the book of Daniel according to the dispensationalist hermeneutic. That isn't true. The the book of Daniel is interpreted straight in a prima facie way and the book of Revelation is interpreted in a prima facie way and we see that that they match up. It matches up with Daniel. Okay, so he's misinterpreted there. But, now's his point. The millennialists, on the other hand, see the New Testament data as determinative, uh, sorry, as the determinative category by which Old Testament and future eschatology is to be interpreted. Therefore, millennialists see the book of Revelation as the God-given interpretation of Daniel. They're reading the Old Testament by the New Testament. But how do they interpret the book of Revelation? 